Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, listeners, and welcome to the latest installment of MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. I'm Brian Shaw, corporate partner in MBM's London office, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Caroline Urban. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Brian. Hi, everyone. Caroline, could you just remind our listeners about what they can expect to hear on the show today? Yes, absolutely. So on each episode, we will catch up with current and former clients whom we've helped buy and sell businesses and other specialists in the M&A field who can share their insights and provide our listeners with hints and tips on the M&A process. The idea is that it's a short 15 to 20 minute podcast that's fun and informative that you can listen to on the go while you're sipping your morning tea or munching on your afternoon snack. Speaking of which, I actually managed to get my hands on probably one of the first uh, lint Easter bunnies. So I'm snacking on its ear at the moment. What have you got, Brian? So I've got a homemade variety for the listeners of our show. And Caroline will know my my wife uh, is not the greatest of cooks. (laughs) We had a baby (laughs) recently and she's learned to bake. So I'm snacking on a a homemade muffin. Mmm, delicious. Brilliant, but I think let's let's crack on with the show. We are joined today by Edward Lee, co-founder of Charge Ferry, the electric vehicle charging subscription service. And Ed was previously CTO of LifeWorks, which was born out of a joint venture between WorkAngel and Ceridian, and was subsequently sold to Canadian Mono Chapelle in 2018. Ed, thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Ed, before we begin, as is traditional, what are you snacking on today? Actually, similar to you, Brian. Um, although I, I baked it myself, during the first lockdown, I started baking uh, Barra Brit, Welsh fruit bread. Um, mm-hmm. So I've got a slice of that uh, to chew on today. I'm being out-talented mm. for sure today. <laughs> Let's kick off with uh, a little bit of context and, and some background for our listeners. So can you tell us about the Edley journey where did it all begin? How did you end up at WorkAngel and subsequently involved in selling the business? I guess to kind of get to the WorkAngel bit, I need to go back a little bit. It's all kind of interwoven um, the past of 15, 20 years almost. Um, so I did a computer science degree um, at Manchester University. Straight out of there, I joined a startup uh, called Transitive. We built essentially compilers and dynamic binary translators uh, for the likes of Apple and IBM, SGI. That was a company that was acquired by IBM in 2008. I lasted three weeks at IBM. I realized pretty quickly that <laughs> I like startups. I'm not so good in big enterprises. At least it wasn't then 12, 13 years ago. It was about the time the iPhone had been released. And I'd been making a few iPhone apps in my spare time. And coincidentally, at a, pretty much the time that IBM acquired us, I had an iPhone app called TV Plus that was number one in the UK iTunes chart. So it was fortunate enough that I could actually sustain myself for a little while on the revenues of that app and a couple of apps I built afterwards. I was approached in 2009 by Jamie True, who was starting an app development agency. And that was really interesting to me, looking at how brands were starting to adopt mobile apps around kind of 2008, 2009. So we started an agency to build apps for pretty much any mobile phone out there at the time. Um, and built banking apps and the app for the FIFA 2012 World Cup, all sorts of really kind of big high profile apps However, I realized fairly quickly, again, that working in agency wasn't quite so fulfilling because you're, you're given a brief from a client and then you build what they ask you to build. And there's not much scope for creativity and kind of making your mark on, on the products you're building. So I left Grapple in 2012 to start my own mobile payment startup. So again, I saw sort of the way things were heading with payments and mobile and 
I won't go into all the nitty gritty, but the short version is we got sued for alleged patent infringement by another London-based startup and that essentially killed the business. So whilst I was slaving away with that and with Paddle from sort of 2012 to 2015, Jamie sold Grapple and started another business called Work Angel. By the time that I was kind of looking for what I was going to do next, Jamie and the Work Angel team had kind of built a, the initial products and started to get a bit of market traction, but didn't really have any technical leadership on the team. And so having worked successfully with Jamie in Grapple, he asked if I'd like to come in and become CTO of Work Angel. So that was about 2015. A nice segue into the question I was going to, to ask you. So you, know, you weren't one of the initial founders. You're brought in, is it around kind of 18, 12, 18 months after WorkAngel was established? You know, how was it like integrating into, into a new team? It was, it was kind of interesting. Certainly when you start a business, you have the luxury of essentially hiring the people you want to work with and you have the, the skill sets that you think you're going to need. You can choose, certainly from a technical point of view, the, the platforms, the tools, the languages you're going to use. Coming in at that stage, only sort of 12, 18 months into the business, most of those decisions had been made. They had a product that was working. And what was interesting is most of the language and technologies I personally wouldn't have chosen. They're not things I would kind of roll my sleeves up and start coding on, which is actually really good because for me, what's from the CTO side of things, that temptation to go and kind of do the work myself, write the code and say, well, don't worry, I'll, I'll fix that, wasn't mm. really there because I kind of, I didn't have that sort of hands-on level of the code. So it gave me the opportunity to look at things from a more sort of holistic point of view. So it gave me a really good grounding in, in, in that side of things. There were a lot of things we had to fix early on because w- when you start the business, you have one idea of who the customers are going to be and what the product is and how it's all going to work. But then with almost any startup, things change pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, within a few months of me joining WorkAngel, we started conversations with Ceridian about the joint venture. And that kind of really changed the, uh, the lens through which we, we saw the business and the way we were headed. Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of how it came about and maybe some of the challenges with negotiating how the joint venture was going to run? And it feels like that was the sort of the stepping stone to get to sale process for the business. Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of the catalyst for the success. So as, as our own sort of entity as WorkAngel, we did have a reasonable amount of success. We had customers, we had some revenue, not, not a huge amount, but we had enough. We were kind of a, a business uh, in our own right with a, with a good product. Uh, yeah, but what really changed is uh, Jamie, who I mentioned, our CEO, was speaking at Ceridian's UK customer conference. And there he met David Ossip, who's the CEO of Ceridian. And they got talking and Jamie was explaining his vision. David had his own vision for Ceridian. They subsequently IPO'd, I think, in around 2018 or 19. But they had this division, LifeWorks, which had been part of Ceridian for maybe 30 years. Um, it was a very old school, traditional employee assistance program. So no real tech, all about employee counseling and well-being, offering all these services that had really nothing to do with Ceridian's core business. So David was looking to streamline as they were on their IPO path um, and saw an opportunity to spin out this business unit of LifeWorks and do a joint venture with WorkAngel. What was the size difference between LifeWorks and WorkAngel and how how did that meld together? So at the, the point of that JV, WorkAngel was still less than 50 people with, yes, yeah, so a single digits, million dollar sort of revenue. The LifeWorks business units was around 500 people, mostly in North America. They, they had about 100 people in Glasgow. We were all based in London. And the business unit was probably doing around $80 million of revenue. So it was kind of a, a lobsided joint venture, <laughs> um, but it was a 50-50 joint venture. Ceridian, TH Lee, their backers, saw the value in the technology that we were bringing to LifeWorks and the need for the EAP industry and the well-being industry to have that tech layer on top that 
the kind of the traditional life works within ceridium just didn't have. So, and that in itself introduced some interesting kind of culture challenges. When you take a group of 30, 40, mostly sort of software engineers, and there's a sales team and marketing team in London with WorkAngel, um, I think the average age is about 27 on the WorkAngel side. In the Ceridian LifeWorks side, I don't know what the age, average age was, but I would say it was considerably higher. And all of those Ceridian LifeWorks employees were used to being part of a much larger company. And so for those 500 or so people to come into a much smaller organization, and for those of us from the WorkAngel side to go into a much bigger organization, the expectations were typically quite mismatched. People adapted very quickly, but it, that was a really interesting experience to kind of understand yeah, what, what you get in a big company, what you don't get in a small company, and, and how people adapt to that, or the lack of that. Did people have to move around? Who kind of took management decisions? Was it done in the US or, or in the UK? Most of the management team were in the UK. But we did have senior leadership in the US and Canada. I guess 75% were in the UK, 25% in North America. I spent a lot of the sort of three or four years at LifeWorks on planes to and from North America, uh, which takes its toll as well. Certainly where we are today in 2021, during the sort of hopefully tail end of the pandemic, uh, when no one's going anywhere, I don't really miss those days. So I guess things must have been going well because, you know, but was it 2018, Morneau, how do you Chappelle? Yeah, Mono Chappelle. Mono Chappelle came along. How did that come about? Did they approach you? Were you actively seeking buyers? Yeah, so we, we did the, the joint venture with, with sort of Sudian LifeWorks to become LifeWorks in, in mm-hmm. 2016. And then we're, we're kind of growing the business, applying sort of the tech to the, the old school services business, and it was going well. And we started acquiring more customers in North America, primarily Canada. Canada is Mono Chappelle's primary market. So we found we were competing with them quite a lot. Uh, competing and winning and so that clearly got their attention in parallel we were out in the market looking to raise money as with most tech business, businesses to scale quickly you want to be investing and, and hiring and, and building out new products so we wanted to, to accelerate that growth and so we were talking to various vc funds private equity funds and we we're looking to raise and as i said about the same time the ceo from mont chapelle gave jamie a call and said look i'd like to uh, to make an offer to acquire LifeWorks is something that I've been looking at for a long time. I feel like there's a, a good strategic fit. This is what we like to offer. What do you think? And obviously it wasn't quite that simple, but over the next six to eight months, that price didn't really change. And we managed to kind of see it through to, to a successful exit. Did you stay on with the business? Yeah, I stayed on for another two years. And what, so, was, it, what was it like post acquisition? So very different. Again, culture. Kind of, I mentioned that a little bit with the the, the Ceridian JV. So, Morning Chappelle was probably around five thousand people when they acquired us. So maybe a similar size to Ceridian when they span out LifeWorks. But again, taking this sort of five or six hundred people from LifeWorks and putting them into Morning Chappelle, there's a another kind of culture difference. And one of the interesting things during the due diligence for the acquisition was the way that the Morning Chappelle technical team looked at my technical team at, at LifeWorks. And of course, even though we were a, a proper company in quotes, we, we still did a lot of things like a startup. And so there were probably things that we should have done a little bit better in hindsight around sort of documenting processes and policies and all those sort of things that big companies like to see and, and need to have. Um, I mean, yeah, we didn't have accreditations. We weren't sort of ISO 27001 or anything like that, but Mont Chappelle need to be. And so when they were looking at us 
doing the doing the DD and saying, well, why haven't you got this or where's this or I need to see proof of X, Y, Z. We didn't really have any of that stuff. And so that was interesting during the DD phase and they kind of got comfortable. But then, of course, once we were part of Mornay Chappelle, we had to make all those changes and had to bring in the processes. And inevitably, that slows things down. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Doing things sort of the proper way, the way that the organization and their customers need to do things clearly is important. But it just meant that the culture was very different and the approach to doing things was very different. So, um, I mean, compared to when IBM acquired Transit, the first startup, where I lasted three weeks, the last two years, I think, is uh, it's clearly I did better that time. <laughs> do you think that the, the, the product changed after the acquisition? Yeah, it did. But again, pretty candidly, it pretty needed to. I think we, we started WorkAngel with one vision. And actually, WorkAngel, when it was a, a sort of 30, 40, 50 person company, had a really great product for other 30, 40, 50 person size companies. We kind of built for what we knew. Then suddenly we had this joint venture with LifeWorks and our customers were everything from five people to 50,000 people. And we tried to use the same products with those customers. And we realized pretty quickly that's not going to fly. So we spent a lot of time iterating on the products. And then again, going into Mona Chappelle, they had a different customer profile and we need to change the products again. And we had these kind of these two big step changes in the organization. Normally with a company, you go through a much more organic growth process. It might be quick, but you can kind of trace each kind of iteration um, a lot more granularly. With this, we had these big macro step changes where we didn't really have the time to, to grow and sort out the teething veins. You know, moving on. So, so you're there for two years and... Then you decided to leave and start an, uh, a mobile electric charging business. Yeah, but tell of us a more about change. that. <laughs> no, please tell us more about that. I, 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 did, I did the two years at Morning Chappelle, and I felt like the, the team and the business and the product were, were in a pretty good place. I'd learned a lot in that time about being part of a, a bigger company and, and valued that sort of time, but really had that itch to, to start something new. And one of the interesting things about LifeWorks, Work Angel Morning Chappelle, is that kind of there's a lot of purpose behind the business. They, their purpose is typically helping people. It's on the employee assistant, the well-being side of things. And so having that kind of purpose was really important. With Charge Ferry, we're kind of looking at the environmental side of things. Obviously, the, the climate challenge that the world is facing post to sort of dwarf this COVID challenge over the next 10 years. So doing something in that space was, was really interesting to me. I've, I've owned an electric car for a number of years now. Just talking to, to friends and colleagues, about this transition, the inevitable transition to electric cars, one of the big concerns around two years ago, and I started thinking about this, for people was home charging. If I can't charge at home, how will I actually maintain an electric car? Do I need to go and plug in at a lamppost or a rapid charging station every couple of days? Looking at that problem and looking at how, I guess, similar problems are solved today, and again, going back to the pandemic is a great example. We're now so used to services being delivered to us whether that's our groceries um, or our takeaways or dry cleaning collections, all those sort of things. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at what, how can we do that for electric cars? We bring the charge to the consumer. Um, that was really the catalyst for charge ferries. And so doing a little bit of research, I, I had some flyers printed advertising what I thought the charge ferry service could be, making it look like it was kind of real, knocked up a, a quick website with a sign-up form and put these flyers on the windscreen of Tesla's parked on North London streets and got a 40% conversion of those customers signing up for this I was gonna say, <laughs> phantom service. Yeah, yes. exactly. It's kind of total paperwork, but I wanted to validate mm -hmm. that people wanted this service and the pain point was mm -hmm. uh, um, as big as I, I felt it was. Um, and that was certainly the case. So then spent the next pretty 12 months or so working on how do you do it? Um, it turns out it's pretty hard. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that people aren't doing this already. 
but mm-hmm. with a bit of help from an engineering partner and, and various other, other groups, I've been able to get the first mobile charger up and running. And we, we first launched the service back in March 2020. So just going into the first UK lockdown, which is interesting timing. It gave us quite a sort of almost a safe test bed for us. People were typically weren't driving that much. They weren't relying on the service. Um, we were able to deliver it without really needing to apply an SLA to it, which was lucky because as with any new technology, any new sort of R&D coming to market, we, we found issues. We ran it for sort of six to six to eight weeks, took those learnings, went back to the drawing board, um, and then built our second generation charger. But at the point now where in the next few weeks, we're actually launching the service properly in London. We've got a, a kind of a tried and tested now proven mobile charger. We've got all the software side built. Uh, we've got customers literally waiting there with credit cards in hand, waiting to hit the streets of London and, and charge their EVs. That's a great yeah. idea. So exciting. Especially um, for London. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think you yeah. know, they keep talking about uh, having more charging points that are going to be administered by the government, but I just don't see where they're going to find the space and the infrastructure to do that. So it's really I think it's a combination, as you say, space and infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, and those kind of electricity supplies for that infrastructure. I mean, if you want to converse a traditional petrol forecourt to be electric, getting the right grid connection is your first challenge, and then mm-hmm. space um, and cost. It, it's not a quick, simple, or cheap process. Um, the great thing about our charges being mobile, we can take them wherever they need to be. So suddenly we find that actually a pocket of North London that we've been servicing, suddenly every light post is, is a charge point. And for whatever reason, customers think that works for them. We can take our service elsewhere and, and operate where people need it. And would you, um, would you say that you're approaching this new venture slightly differently, having had the experience of the sale previously? Yeah, I think so. The, 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 two, the two things that kind of resonated both with the, the joint venture and the sale, because um, the JV was almost looked at with the same sort of DD scrutiny as an acquisition, mm. it's just getting all your ducks in a row in advance. So that kind of scramble to put together the policy documents I mentioned and the processes and making sure that you're kind of running all the, the right things that companies want to see. There's often actually good reason for that. It feels at times like it's a burden for a startup and it slows you down. But actually, I found putting all of that, those things in place now, so getting the, the foundations certainly from the technical side, rights will hopefully pay off in the future. We get that from a lot of our guests. Yeah, be prepared, get your ducks lined up early in a row and don't expect the Absolutely. sale to happen quickly. You know, the, the, the more organized you are, the quicker, the smoother the process is, but it still does take time regardless. It, it absolutely takes time, yeah. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, again, as is traditional on all of our podcasts, we end the show with a rapid fire round, okay? You'll have 60 seconds to answer as many questions as you can in that time. All right. Are you ready? In one word or phrase only. On your mark. Get set. What was your first job? I was working in the IT department of a wholesale uh, garden nursery. What is your favorite holiday destination? Uh, Skiing in Switzerland. If you were having a dinner party and could invite three guests, alive, dead or fictional, who would you invite and why? To be honest, I would probably invite three of my best friends, having not really seen them uh, for the past year and a half, just a little year for lockdown. That's a very fair. Good answer, yeah. Um, what's your favourite movie? I always joke that it's Twister. Okay. <laughs> I which, like that film. Which I, which I do like yeah. a lot. What are you currently reading? I'm not actually reading anything at the moment. 
That's an answer Sorry. too. That's an um, answer. If Richard Branson sat next to you on a flight, what would be your first question other than, are you Richard Branson? I would ask why he was on a British Airways flight. <laughs> I have a weird loyalty to BA, I'm afraid. And finally, if you could travel back in time to meet your 10-year-old self, what advice would you give him? Um, oh, wow. I think just try and be yourself and try and be a bit more confident. That's pretty good. Well, Ed, thank yeah. you so much for your time and thank you for participating in MBM's m and Snack and Chat podcast. Thank you for having me. So that's it for today. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, with our chat with Edward Lee. Join us next time when Caroline and I will be joined by another special guest where we will chat and snack all things M&A. Goodbye. Goodbye.